Christians disagree among themselves about what Christians should believe. During the pandemic in 2020, many Christians protested and at times even disregarded the closure of in-person worship, while other Christians urged for this very same closure in order to protect their neighbors. Likewise, some Christians believe evolution goes against their belief in God, while other Christians believe that it has enriched their view of God. Some Christians support certain political leaders and their policies, while other Christians are very critical of the very same leaders and what they are doing. And they all claim that they hold these views because of their Christianity. So, who's following the real Christianity? Will the real Christianity stand up, please? And my answer is, all of them are. And in another sense, none of them are. And that's because they are all in the process of becoming the real one. Welcome to What Do You Mean God Speaks, a series for the skeptics who want to understand religious viewpoints, to the Christians who have questions about their own beliefs, and everyone in between. I am Paul Sungojang, and this is our fifth episode, Which One is the Real Christianity? Will the real Christianity stand up? Christians are a surprisingly diverse group. Well, perhaps not so surprising considering that there are 2.4 billion Christians from vastly different cultures, societies, and people groups all over the world. And Christianity has a 2,000-year-old history. And through it all, it has continuously developed and transformed in response to the many cultural and historical setting where its message and vision was preached. Now, this kind of diversity is found in one form or another in other major religious traditions. Christianity may be notable in how wide it has spread, but it's by no means unique in this. But the question we want to consider is not what makes Christians so diverse, but what makes them all Christians and be different in what they believe and how they act from each other. Let's limit our talk to the English-speaking Anglo-American societies. Even in that specific context, Christianity is strikingly diverse. And this is not simply about diversity in social, cultural, or racial demographics. It's about how Christians display a very wide and diverging range of beliefs and behaviors. What they believe, the values they hold, how they behave, all of them can be vastly different from individual to individual and church to church. There are the differences in beliefs or positions that they hold. Some are conservative, some are liberals, some are opposed to certain established scientific theories like evolution. Others not only support them but are scientists themselves in that very field. Some speak up for LGBT plus communities and their rights, while others are opposed to things like gay marriage. Some worship God or read the Bible one way, the others do so in some other way. That Christians disagree with each other about their own beliefs has manifested in history in how Christians have split into the three different major branches of Christianity today, the Catholics, the Orthodox, and the Protestants. Not only that, Christian teachings about a number of things have undergone changes through history so that what Christians in the past believe are often not what Christians today believe. So, what makes all of them Christians? Or are they Christians? After all, it's not uncommon to hear some Christians say to the others that they are not real Christians, not only to those who display some obviously horrendous flaws, but to those who simply hold different views or positions as Christians themselves. But these different sides all claim that they believe what they believe or do what they do because of their Christianity. 
But then, why is their Christianity seemingly so different from the other Christianity they disagree with? Are these rival Christianities all Christianity? And if so, why? We're actually asking two questions here though. Here's the first question. What makes a person a real Christian? Someone who's genuinely Christian and not merely pretending or using religiosity as a front. And the Christian answer is, someone in whose heart dwells Jesus Christ himself. But what does that even mean? Well, we can think of it like this. Think of everything that makes you who you are. Your memories, your character, the values you hold, and so on. If you shed what's less important and get to the very core of who you are, or at least who you hope to be, what's left? For Christians, it is the person of Jesus Christ. His life, teachings, death, resurrection, his character, his relation to God, and to us. This is what's supposed to define a Christian's centermost being. Which is all good and well, but how do you tell if someone's like that? Well, Jesus said that by their fruits you will know. In the letter to the Galatians in the Bible, Apostle Paul lists these fruits in terms of the person's characteristics, which by the way reflects the character of Jesus himself. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So people who display these characters are real Christians, right? And this is where our answer becomes very hard to apply at least when we try to do so to other people. And that's because the very message of Christianity is Jesus Christ reconciling all people, even the worst kind of people, to God. It's about mercy and redemption. And what that means is that real Christians can include, for the lack of better words, truly hellish people. But God is making them less hellish and more like Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no fake Christians. Rather, that those who claim to be Christians fall under two categories. The real Christians who are growing less hellish and more like Christ, and fake ones who's growing less like Christ and more hellish. But where they start from can be vastly different. We can have people who grew up in abusive homes without any example of love and became a cruel, murderous person who then became a Christian. They will now become less hellish, more loving, patient, kind, and gentle. But they're starting off from being very hellish, so it's much harder to see, at least at first. Then we may have people who grew up in privileged lifestyles, attending churches since childhood and so on, so that on the outside they seem to be Christians. But they're actually more hellish than where they ought to be given their starting point. Christ is actually irrelevant to them, but they wear Christianity as a convenient mask to hide or even justify their yet unnoticeable but growing arrogance, spitefulness, hostility, or greed, while on the outside they seem like very moral people. So how can you tell which is which? Well, it would be very hard if you're trying to figure out if someone else is a real Christian. It's a different story when we apply it to ourselves. But if you're worried that you're fake, I should point you to the psalm in the Bible that notes God will not despise a contrite heart. And also, remember that spiritual journey in Christianity is not linear. There will be ups and downs, detours, and stumbles. Well, let's leave that question for now and ask the second question. Assuming we are dealing with real Christians, what makes their beliefs real Christianity? 
especially when these Christians seem to differ from each other on a lot of beliefs that they hold. This may seem to have a simpler answer at first. For example, they all follow the Bible, right? This is true, but not a sufficient answer. The problem is, Christians can read and interpret parts of the Bible differently. Now, everyone seems to more or less agree on the key points, like God is, or that Jesus Christ is their Savior and Lord, but we went over an example just last episode of how different Christians can read even the first chapter of Genesis in this account of God creating the world very differently. Of course, the Bible is the key text from which Christians draw their beliefs and values from. That's obvious. But not everyone draw the exact same beliefs from it. This gets even more complicated because how Christians read and understand parts of the Bible can and has changed over time. For example, most Christians today do not think that Apostle Paul's exhortation to slaves to display Christ-like patience and love to their masters is implicitly justifying slavery as an institution. The other answer is to find what beliefs every Christian hold in common. This seems to hold more promise. For example, we can point to creeds like the Nicene or the Apostles' Creeds. And these creeds have a list of beliefs that every branch of Christianity and their denominations confess to be true, such as the following. We believe in God the Father. We believe that God has created all things. We believe in God the Son, Jesus Christ, who was born as a human being, was crucified, died, and rose again on the third day. We believe in God the Holy Spirit, that God loves us, that our sins are forgiven, that God has set up the church, that there is a resurrection of the body and everlasting life. Then there are the ethical beliefs, which can be summarized as love God and love the people around you as yourself. Or as Jesus himself puts it, love each other as I have loved you. Then there's one about the Bible. Bible is written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to guide God's people. So every Christian believes these things. And while that's definitely true, it's more complicated than that. What I mean is that it isn't as simple as saying out of say 100 beliefs that Christians have, Beliefs number 1 to number 10 that we mentioned are held in common, while beliefs number 11 through number 100 can be different. And this is because important beliefs we hold are interconnected. Here's an example. Our belief that democracy is the best form of government, or the one with Winston Churchill's qualification that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones that has been tried. But this belief does not stand on its own is connected with other beliefs that we hold, like equality of every individual, or the value of universal suffrage, or our trust in the transparent political process, or in our fellow citizens, or our view that power can corrupt, so that those in power should only be given rule temporarily, and only by the mandate from the people to be renewed each term. Knock out any one of these beliefs, and our whole belief in democracy starts to shake, or even crumble. These beliefs are connected together to form a, a particular configuration. And this is how it is for Christian beliefs too. So that when Christians disagree, it's not simply that one side just has some separate additional beliefs in their list that the other side does not. Their Christianity has a different configuration, different network of related beliefs. So, how do these different configurations of Christian beliefs arise, and how are we to understand them as Christian? Well, perhaps you may be surprised to hear that a good tool to understand this comes from philosophy of science, from analyzing how science works. 
Some of you may have heard T.S. Kuhn's The Structures of Scientific Revolution. It's the book that popularized the term paradigms. Now, there's a lot to this work, so we're just going to pick up one relevant thread of it. And that is, not every scientific theory has the same status. A few are overarching theories. Think of Darwin's theory of evolution, or Newton's theory of gravity, or Einstein's theory of relativity. These theories have a different status. For one thing, once they're properly established, it's much more difficult to disprove or discard them than other theories in that discipline. For example, when scientists found out that the orbit of Mercury was different from how it was supposed to be according to Newton, they didn't conclude that Newton was wrong. Instead, they thought that they were wrong to think that there was no other planet near Mercury, that there must be an undetected planet, Vulcan, that affected its orbit. Similarly, today, there are some holes in Einstein's theories, and so scientists postulate dark matter and dark energy even though we haven't been able to observe them. The reason why paradigms are so difficult to discard is that once these theories are established, which involve a complicated process of proofs and persuasions, they provide their discipline with such a large-scale and comprehensive understanding of its subject matter, a framework if you will, that without it, scientists wouldn't be able to make sense of anything or even conduct, well, science. If the examples in science is confusing you, I will soon give you a more down-to-earth example. Because its characteristic is not unique to science. It's a characteristic of how we believe, think, or reason about everything. What I mean is that even in everyday life, we all have beliefs that are like paradigms, large-scale, harder-to-discard beliefs, the kind that without them, we would be lost. We are going to call these core beliefs. Why core? Because they are at the center of a configuration of other interconnected beliefs which are a varying level of importance. I call the beliefs that surround the core auxiliary beliefs or encasing beliefs. But let's talk about the core beliefs first. Core beliefs are more than just beliefs about this or that fact about the world. They're about how we relate to things in general, how we understand them at a very fundamental level. Einstein's general relativity, for example, is about how we think about space and time at a very fundamental level, which in turn shape how scientists do physics after Einstein. At a broader level, at the level of worldview of, say, a core belief that binds every possible scientific discipline and every worldview that is scientific, you would be something like, we can understand and describe the rational structure and principle of things, which by the way is the idea of the logos we discussed in the last episode. Discard the core, and you don't just discard one belief about the world. You discard how to relate to that world in a particular way. Discard the theory of relativity without a replacement. We can't do physics. Discard the idea of the logos. We can't do science. But the core beliefs tend to be too broad, too abstract without something more concrete. Examples, explanations, analogies, particular predictions and confirmations, things that tell us how this core belief plays out in our lives. These are the auxiliaries or the encasing beliefs. They encase the core with a content, something that we can see. Okay, so a non-scientific example. Let's say there's this little child who has his following belief. His mother loves him and he can trust her. 
This is a core belief for the child. It informs him how he is to understand and relate to the most significant person in his life. Discard that belief, much of his relationship with his mother breaks apart, and along with it, much of his world. The thing is, what does it mean for a child to believe his mother loves him and he can trust her when he's, say, four years old? At four, he probably won't be able to even articulate the core in the same words I use. It would probably be more like, mom is always nice to me and gives me things I like. He may also be old enough to think something like, mom's the one that gave birth to me. These statements encase his core and make them concrete. In fact, at four, these are what his mother's love means to him. Then, let's say the child is older, he now has a little sister, and out of envy he bullies her mercilessly, only to have his mother scold him very sharply. Or say, when he becomes sick, his mother takes him to a doctor who terrifies him with painful needles and awful-tasting medicine. Then she takes him there again, the next day, even though he begs her not to. These events should disprove his belief, formed at four, that his mother loves him, since the content, the concrete meaning he has encased his core with, was that his mother is nice to him and will give him the things he likes. Now the child has two choices. He can give up his core, or he can change his encasing belief. His mother is not always nice to him or gives him what he likes, but that does not mean she does not love him. In fact, Part of her love means that she will sometimes discipline him or do things the child may not like because she cares about his health. He retains his core beliefs about his mother. But how he understands it, how he defines terms like love, has changed. We can even say they matured. Let's say the child is older now, in his teens. Then one day he finds out he was adopted. What happens to his core belief that his mother loves him and he can trust her? Hasn't it been falsified completely? His mother isn't even his biological mother. Yet some of us may passionately assert that all the love his adoptive mother showed him should truly demonstrate who his real mother is. And if our child, now teenager, agrees, then he retains the core. But his encasing belief, in this case the definition of mother, goes through a radical expansion. Of course, this parable could have unfolded very differently. Some assaults to the core is so severe that it has to be discarded. If, say, the child believes his mom loves him and he can trust her but is in a horrifically abusive relationship, he may still revise his encasing belief to protect his core, at least at the beginning, to justify the abuse like, she hurts me because she can't help herself. But there will be limits, and one day it will break, as it should. But this, of course, will bring down a large portion of his world, and for a long time, he would, simply put, be lost. That's what happens when a core belief is abandoned. Let's go back to the beliefs that all Christians seem to share. These beliefs aren't merely common beliefs. They are core beliefs. To believe that God created all things inform how Christians are to relate to everything, because everything is from God. That God loves us, or that Christ has saved us, or that our sins are forgiven, or that we should love each other as Christ has loved us, all fundamentally shape how we are to relate to God, to relate to reality as a whole, and to other people and ourselves. Abandon these beliefs, Christians cannot relate to anything or anyone as Christians. But these beliefs require concrete forms. We need to know how these beliefs are to be understood and play out in real life here and now in our particular situation and times. We need to ask what these beliefs mean 
And that's the task of every Christian in every age because they need to work out all of that anew each generation for each community and people. But different Christians may come up with different answers. Their answer may be different from one age to the other because of changes in society or new discoveries and findings or perhaps, hopefully, greater moral maturity as a civilization. So there could be very different Christian positions on the same issue because Christians can encase their core Christian beliefs in different ways. In a way, this is just like how a Christian is really Christian if the person of Jesus Christ defines the innermost core of one's identity and being. Yet each Christian can manifest his core identity in different ways and even start from a different degree of moral and spiritual character as they are being made less hellish and more Christ-like. The real ones, I mean. And likewise, every real Christianity is formed from the same core, the beliefs articulated in the Christian creeds and such. Yet each Christian may encase their core beliefs differently, connect them and apply them in different ways, and some of these may be less mature and less thoughtful than others. Some may even be hellish and are being in the longer process of becoming less hellish and closer to the truth. However, in some ways, every Christian answer, even the ones we think are good today, is always incomplete. Christians are still growing like the child in my story. Apostle Paul writes this way in his letter, in fact, right after the passage I quoted in the second episode. For now, we only know in part. But when the complete comes, this partial knowledge will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, and reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully. And in the meanwhile, these three things will remain constant, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. So our answer today of what we mean by God, how God created the world, what God does, how God speaks, to what kind of ethical standard we ought to uphold, what society we should build, will continue to be corrected and grow. They will change. And Christians hope that by the grace of God, they will change for the better. Because just like our journey to grow into Christ-likeness, our answers too will have detours and stumbles. But hopefully we will learn from everything. From the Bible, yes. But also from each other from other cultures, philosophies, and sciences. In the meanwhile, what will be constant and so move us forward into the unknown are our faith and our hope, our core beliefs, that God who loves us will guide us to the truth. Our beliefs, our understanding, is in the process of growing closer to that of God's. So just like how each Christian individual is in the process of becoming more like the character of Christ, our Christianity is in the process of becoming a real Christianity. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoy this content, please subscribe, follow, or share. The real talk, I say if because I actually don't know, and I would like to hear from the listeners. So click on the podcast's website in the description, or better yet, visit my Instagram account and leave a comment. Otherwise, you can rate my podcast on Apple or share with those who'd be interested in a series like this. 
Anyway, please join me for the next episode why everything we say about God comes with a caveat.